is Dot. And this is Lindsay. Welcome to Inside My Favorite Manuscript, the podcast where we talk to people who love manuscripts about the manuscripts they love the most. Today, we are thrilled to welcome Stephen Hopkins. Stephen is Assistant Professor of English at the University of Central Florida. Stephen's work focuses on early English literature in its North Sea context, primarily Old English literature, but in conversation with literature in Wales, Ireland, and Iceland. He also works on religious texts, and his current project concerns infernal apocrypha, apocrypha about hell. I think his interests in Old English literature and early English Christianity combine in some really interesting ways in the manuscript we'll be looking at today, and I'm really excited to talk about it. Welcome, Stephen. Thanks, Dot, and thanks, Lindsay. I'm so happy to be here. We're excited to have you here, too. Uh, Before we start, I want to say my son is playing Minecraft downstairs. So if you hear a little voice coming up in the recording, that's all that is. I'll try to edit him out. But he was talking (laughs) during the intro, and I just don't feel like trying again. So so that's where we are. (laughs) So tell us, what manuscript are we going to be talking about today? Right. So today I wanted to talk to you about my favorite manuscript, which is Bodleian Library MS Junius 11. So um, this is one of the four uh, poetic codices, is what they call them, of Old English poetry. Um, So four poetry books. Uh, And there's only four, right? The Old English poetic corpus is not huge. I think it's something like 300,000 lines of poetry for like everything total. So this is one of the four books that we have that has Old English poetry in it. Um, It's also the only one that has pictures. This manuscript used to be known as the Cadman Manuscript because basically uh, Bede tells us in his uh, ecclesiastical history that Cadman is this illiterate um, swineherd who is miraculously sort of visited by an angel and in in the middle of the night and given the gift of poetry, right? And Mm -hmm. so, you know, he... He says, I don't know how to do poetry. And the angel's like, sing me something, right? Sing me what will go, the angel says. And so he just learns how to recite poetry. He, he learns Bible stories and he sort of recites them. So Bede tells us that uh, Cadman sings the creation of the world, the origin of humankind and the whole history of Genesis and the departure of Israel from Egypt, among other topics in the Old and New Testaments. And so based on that ascription, scholars used to call this manuscript the Cadman manuscript because the contents pretty much match that. There are four poems in it. Well, three and a half, depending on how you want to count it. There's Genesis A and Genesis B, and we can talk about that later. Then there's Exodus, there's Daniel, uh, and then the last one is Christ and Satan. And so those those poems pretty closely match what Bede tells us. The last century of scholarship has worked pretty hard to show that it's not likely that the same poet composed all these things. You know, for being generous, maybe it's from a Cadmonian school. You know, this is oral poetry or, you know, poetry that's sort of on that oral literate divide. So maybe these were inspired by Cadman. Who knows? But yeah, so so if you hear someone talk about the Cadman manuscript, they're talking about the Junius manuscript. Right. And Cadman, so I know Cadman mostly because of Cadman's hymn. Mm-hmm. And that's a po- that's the poem that you're that's actually in Bede's. Uh, is that correct? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when he right. tells uh, tells us about Cadman, that's the actual poem that he gives us in Latin, mind you. Um, it's only later manuscripts that where scribes will write in the margin the Old English version of it. Um, okay. So we don't actually get any of the Old English from Bede himself. But yeah, right, that's right. his like evidence of like the miracle of Old English Christian poetry. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah, and I was going to say um, it's the manuscript is called the Junius Manuscript because it was owned by a Dutch um, scholar named Franciscus Junius, 
who wound up donating it to the um, Bodleian, I think in 1655, I have to fact check that. But uh, yeah, so he got it from Archbishop Usher from Ireland uh, as a gift. And so- What was it doing uh, in Ireland? We don't really know. Usher was a was a major book collector, so presumably okay. he was just snatching up all the, you know, medieval codices that he could. Like most old English books, we don't really know what happens provenance wise after mm-hmm. the dissolution of monasteries by Henry VIII. So you know, Henry dissolves the monasteries, and like, there's uh, eyewitness reports of manuscripts being destroyed just for funsies because it's you know the Protestant Revolution. Um, <laughs> And so, yeah, a lot of books just go missing and it's hard to trace them until a century or so later when antiquarians start collecting them. So I think that's about as far back as we can go with this one. Uh, We do think that it's mentioned in a book inventory of, I think, the 12th century um, where they we're actually not totally sure if it's this book. It just says that there's an illustrated Genesis, which could refer to this or it could refer to there's another famous um, illustrated Old English Bible manuscript that's like, the Old English Hexateuch is what it's called. Um, and it's, it's, I know that one. Yeah. It's a really good one. <laughs> it's also a really good one, but you can see how the title, like, the, I can see, the book the yeah. we have no idea which one it is. So it might yeah. be this one. But yeah, that's the only thing we know about it, other than it was made in the 10th, mid 10th century, mid to late 10th century. And then lots of question and then marks. It appeared in Ireland with this person. And now yeah. it's at the Bodleian. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Um, I'm trying to think of, I think one thing that is worth, noting and we can you know we'll have the pictures in the show notes right um mm-hmm. oh yeah well i'll i will load up the show notes with all sorts of pictures from the manuscript for sure yeah i was gonna say that this is one of the older texts that we've that your mm-hmm. um, podcast has looked at and so Absolutely. if you if your listeners want to look at the actual binding of this thing it's an old scrubby manuscript and i love that um <laughs> It's not Thank like you. a beautiful book of hours. It's mm-hmm. kind of rough, right? I'm looking at the front cover right now and it's it looks like there's grubby leather probably over wooden boards. Yeah. And it's it is very grubby. And you I love it. There used to be a big <laughs> clasp there on the front, but yep. it's not there anymore. Yep. Um there's debate as to how old this actual cover is, but um it it seems to be at least Norman possibly original um it's hard right. to tell it's hard to be sure but one yeah. thing i love about the covers is that when you go to the second um it, we're not like inside the manuscript yet but when you look on the back sides of the front and back covers like you can actually see the boards yeah um, there's the wood because the the leather only sort of folds over a couple inches around it yeah so there's the wood yeah yeah so just from like a material like book history perspective you know you hear about book boards and stuff but it's really i think it's fun to show students like these are these are called boards because they are actual pieces of wood, right? Wood, yeah. yeah, yeah. And it looks like this has been this has been cracked too. It looks like that front cover has been cracked. Have you have you seen this manuscript in person? Have you I have not. It makes me very sad. Um, yeah, I have not been in the British Library. I've been to Copenhagen to look at Old Norse manuscripts. I've seen some Welsh manuscripts, but I have not not had the privilege of meeting not this so one in person yet. So if any listeners out there want to, you know, start a GoFundMe, um, let me know. <laughs> I think that'd be great. Yeah. I also want to point out that since this one is so old, it's frankly all manuscripts from this time period and, and dot, you know, you're probably have much better expertise than I do about like the range of manuscript survival rates, but basically like the century, the more centuries you go back, you get like an exponentially smaller number of manuscripts yeah. that survive period. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So this one holds a special place in my heart because it's just so rare to have any books from the time period that I study, right? Anything before like 1100 is just vanishingly rare. Is very rare. Yeah, we don't have in our collection, in our collections, my personal collection, no, my employer's <laughs> collections, we don't have any, I think the earliest, well, we do, we have a ninth century manuscript uh, in our collection, partial, it's ninth and 11th century, uh, but it's not from England, it's from... Yeah. It's from the continent. And I think, I don't know, because of the dissolution of the monasteries in England, I think earlier manuscripts are less likely to survive. Yeah, for sure. Um, um, yeah, I was trying to think. So, And I, I used to work at the Lilly Library in grad school at Indiana University. And I think the oldest they had, they had a ninth century um, Life of St. Martin. Yeah. That's yeah. like the so they're around, but, touched. Yeah. but they are pretty rare. And as you say, there are only four main of these um, poetic manuscripts from England that survive. Uh, and I should I should uh, say that if you're listening, if you haven't already heard the episode that we did with Brandon Hawk, which we'll have posted a couple of weeks ago, uh, Brandon talks about the Exeter not the, no, the Exeter book is a different one. <laughs> sorry, sorry. The Richelli book, which is yet another one of them. And if so, you should, when you're done listening to this one, you should go listen to us talk to Brandon Hawk about uh, the Richelli book because I feel like there's a lot. It's a different, it's a very different kind of book than this one. Yeah. Um, but it's that old, like the, the old English, very old book ending. And that one ends up in a strange place. Like you kind of expect a, an old English book to be in the British library, but in that one turns up in Italy mm -hmm. uh, for reasons that you can know if you listen to the podcast. Yeah. Um, so sorry to interrupt. So, oh, so yeah. we were in, so we're inside the cover. So what happens once we get inside the cover? So, so once we're, inside. once we actually open this thing, um, <laughs> there are, I think one of the things that really captured me about this manuscript, this was the first, I think this was the first medieval manuscript that I ever like actually looked at. Like, so as an undergrad, like I wanted to do my senior honors thesis on, the old English Exodus for a bunch of bizarre reasons, but uh, my history of the English language teacher sort of like, you know, medieval pilled me. Um, <laughs> and so I, I, he gave me this, uh, the, this facsimile used to exist like on a DVD. Um, mm -hmm. so he let me borrow his copy. And like, I just like stayed up way too late looking at all the pictures because one of the things that makes this such a striking manuscript is it has a series of systematic uh, images that match the narratives, the poetic narratives that are in it. Um, it's, mm -hmm. it's got about 50, um, 50 illustrations in it and it's unfinished, right? So there are 50 illustrations right now. There are blank spaces throughout the manuscript, mm -hmm. throughout the rest of the manuscript after they stop where you can tell that they were leaving space for more pictures. And for whatever reason, the manuscript remained unfinished, but I just think it's so cool that like, you know, even though the poems weren't necessarily written to go together, someone mm -hmm. had a vision of like telling this grand epic you know cosmic history starting with right. creation and going all the way to like the final judgment basically with christ and satan so they had this this vision for this whole narrative and they wanted to illustrate it as it goes through um right right and they could clearly plan what even though the illustrations aren't aren't complete because since they left those spaces, we know that somebody went through and planned, okay, this is what's going to illustrate this. And this is what's going to illustrate this. It's a shame they weren't, it's a shame they didn't finish. Yeah, um, I completely yeah. agree. And especially because, you know, if I can just be like personal, like my favorite old English poem in general is Exodus. Like that has remained mm -hmm. constant for me. 
And the illustrations stop right at the end of Genesis. I'm like, oh, oh we couldn't even get one <laughs> after the picture. <laughs> it's like they did it on purpose just to bug you. Yep. Yeah, um, I try not to take it personally, but Yeah. <laughs> no, that that is that's very cool. Yeah. May may I ask, why is Exodus your favorite? Ooh. Um the short answer is because it is such a weird poem. Um <laughs> It is, if you've read, like, if anyone, if any listeners out there have read uh, any old English poetry, it's probably Beowulf, right? People are forced to read it at Spearpoint in high school or college. And it's usually a negative experience for people because, you know, maybe it's not taught well or something, but I, I like it. But anyway, you, it's this sort of heroic, you know, Beowulf versus, big brawny Beowulf versus monsters. You know, he fights Grendel and he wrestles him and rips his arm off and then he fights a dragon, you know, cool stuff like that. And I think that's what people like think of when they think of old English poetry is this sort of heroic Germanic ethos, you know, uh, the, the warrior comitatus that goes out and fights together. And there is a lot of that, but. One thing I love about Exodus is that it is, I think, a perfect specimen of the other side of Old English poetry. That is, when you think about who's writing these things, it's monks, right? These are the people who actually keep literacy um, at this point in history. And so the Old English Exodus is a retelling of Exodus, uh, of the of the actual flight out of Egypt uh, by the Israelites. But it's told in this really bizarre allegorical style that treats them like warriors, Right. So, like, if you know the Exodus narrative, you know that these are, you know, refugees who have escaped slavery and they're fleeing the desert in very large numbers on foot. There's not much in the way of martial imagery, like no one's fighting, right? They're only interested in running. But in the Old English version, it's retold with, like, um, uh, Moses is called the Heretoga, right? The, the army leader, right? Um, and he's like this <laughs> mighty warrior who leaps up on a rock to like exclaim, like to cheer his his soldiers on, um, even though they're still getting chased, right? There's this weird tension between like, yeah, but they're running all the time, but they're ready to fight. <laughs> don't want to fight. Um, in they fact, don't I don't... Fight. They're just making it, they're playing hard to get. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's these weird tensions. Um, but even weirder than that is the fact that like, if you know anything about Exodus, these people are running through a desert, right? right and yet... It, the poem repeatedly calls them sailors and sea men, seafarers. Um, and it talks about like the mast ropes of God's protection. Like there's all this like maritime imagery throughout it. And they're in the desert. Um, that was one of the things that as an undergrad really caught my eye. I was like, what have they done to Exodus and why are they doing it? It turns out that it's sort of one way that scholars have reckoned with it um, is that it's this very elaborate typological conceit where they're reading they're looking at the events of the old, of, of exodus and they are saying well we have this metaphor that uh, of the ship of the church right that that the church in general that salvation is like this naval voyage christians get on a boat they depart from their home and they sail through the rough waters of life the spiritual dangers and they'll arrive safe at the heavenly harbor right this is like a, a conceit that goes back to at least ambrose of milan in the 300s but they've taken that idea and sort of they're reading Exodus through it, right? And so Exodus can be read that way, right? Like God is delivering these sailors in the Hebrew Bible, but they're also Christians now. Um, and then, of course, there's also another way to read it where like they're passing through the Red Sea through the waters and they're, they're delivered that way. Salvation comes from passing through the waters, which is a pretty common way of uh, thinking about baptism in in theological history as well right so it works on a lot of layers to get these this maritime imagery in the desert it's all very confusing in some ways because 
it's such a frenetic hot mess of a poem like it doesn't explain any of its logic to you it just keeps switching imagery um one second it's talking about the uh, the pillar of fire that god appears in um but then the next second it calls it a day shield that shields them from the clouds and you're like is it a cloud or is it fire is it daytime or nighttime i can't tell again are they running or are they fighting so there's all these like weird tensions in it that i think um are meant to be sort of almost like a riddle right they're meant to be confusing they're meant to sort of force you to slow down and think about all the different moments and emotions that are going through and sort of how the individual is supposed to relate devotionally to this narrative that can be about their salvation if you read it in the right way um, there's even a little passage at the end of the poem that talks about unlocking this riddle if you have the right kind of wisdom um, where the poem sort of gets meta and talks about itself right before the end um, so yeah I love it it's because there's always something new and bizarre to like scratch your head at when you look at it <laughs> That's amazing. It's very different from the other poems in this manuscript. That's my favorite part of doing these podcasts is that you guys are, you know, you're scholars. This is what you do. You deal with these books every day. I'm very interested in the way you personally relate to them, not the object Mm -hmm. itself, but what's in it, the stories. And I, I just will never get tired of hearing people talk about these wacky things that speak to them and i definitely get why that speaks to you never read anything like it anywhere else (laughs) that is that is very cool it sounds a little bit when you were talking about how the imagery kept kept switching it did make me think of um the dream of the rude Mm -hmm. uh which has which does switch between you know the the dream of the rude it's the cross starting as a tree and then the cross that jesus is crucified on and in one part in particular it goes back and forth between like i was covered with gore i was covered with jewels so it sounds a little bit like that only like turned up to 11 exactly like like just like that at least kind of makes sense it's like we are making a poetic comparison between the gore of you know christ's blood and jewelry because that makes sense but like that just sounds a little bit yeah the typology has been dialed up to 11 and it lingers over a, like every single like sentence in the poem. Like yeah. it's not just like the dream of the root is like uh, restrained and like careful about it. Like it mm-hmm. has moments where it does that, but then it shifts back to narrative and it's easier to follow. Exodus, right. like literally every half line has some kind of allegorical weight to it. If you're thinking about it and it doesn't do you any favors. It's such a baffling poem. Even like, I think there's over, I counted it one time. There's over 160. Um, oh, what's the plural? I was going to say hapax legomena. Hapaxes legomena. <laughs> it's the fancy <laughs> word for when a, a word that is unattested anywhere else in the corpus of a language. Oh, right. So yeah, so there are over 150 words that this poet seems to have just made up specifically for this poem. So mm-hmm. even just figuring out what a given sentence is actually referring to can be hard um, because they'll make up compounds and you're just like, I, I guess this must, you know, we can guess what this means, but we're not totally sure because we've never seen anyone else use it. Right, like, um, the, like Old English Lewis Carroll. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, if you've read the Jabberwock, it's a little bit like that. Yeah, Jabberwock with, with Moses. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. And we're still, the thing is, we're still on, like, the, I'm looking at the first page. Oh, right. <laughs> there's a manuscript. So there's a manuscript. 
<laughs> so we should go back to that manuscript because I was going to say the manuscript. <laughs> despite Exodus's wonderful imagery, it has no images in the manuscript. No images in it. <laughs> the, but the the images that are there for Genesis, which. I don't know if I should go on the record of saying this. Genesis is a much more reserved poem. It's a lot more down to earth, especially Genesis A is mm-hmm. like, it's the book of Genesis in Old English verse. It doesn't follow it exactly. There is one really cool, notable change. And, uh, you know, my my thing is Apocrypha. So this is, yeah, I have to, I have to talk about this. But if you look at the image, the very first image that you see on the very first page of the manuscript, you get this image of God in his throne room in heaven. You can see the pillars on the sides. Uh, he's surrounded by biblically accurate angels. You can see all the eyeballs there to the left of his hand. I see um, eyeballs and I see and I see wings sort of crossing each other. Yeah. Yeah. So we've got the seraphs that surround him. And I really don't know. There's an article. I can't remember now who wrote it. There's an article that talks about what these little squiggly lines around him are. Oh, oh, those are lines. I I was thinking that was some sort of like water damage, but it's not, is it? It's actually Uh -uh, squiggly lines that that are on the page. Yeah. And I think the theory was either that it's supposed to be the smoke that, uh, oh, wow. I haven't read this article in like 10 years. So I'm like really reaching back. So correct me if I'm wrong, but I think they said that maybe it's the smoke that is said to be in God's throne room in Isaiah somewhere, or else it's supposed to be like, you're peering through like a portal, right. And sort of a sci-fi kind of way. That is very cool. Yeah. So, so immediately though, whatever it's supposed to represent, you get this vision, this like sort of cosmic vision of we're going to see creation from God's perspective. And what's interesting is then that next image that we see uh, shows us if we're going to talk about Genesis, you might think, oh, they're going to start with the creation story, right? The creation of the world and then, you know, the six days of creation, Adam and Eve at the end. But if you look on what is that page two, uh, this this manuscript is numbered a little oddly. It's got like individual pages instead of folios. Yeah. Um, But on manuscript page two, you can see. We actually see God starting out with the creation of angels. Angels. Yeah, I was going to say. Uh-huh. And then page three shows us this multi-panel, full-page length illustration that shows the fall of the angels. Oh, neat. Oh, wow. You can see Satan there is convincing the other angels to render their little crowns and their worship to him at the top. Mm-hmm. And then by the bottom, by the third row, we can see Jesus is not down with this and he is throwing spears downwards at the fourth panel which has satan now bound in this hell mouth uh, and he's being burned and tortured and stuff wow that is oh, a wow. very intense uh, <laughs> set of illustrations and they're really they're i don't know if they're pretty but there's like black and red ink yeah right yeah 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 there it's are not just black ink right that's um there's an article on this, I think by uh, Asa Mittman, um, talking about the different kinds of color that are being used and how it's supposed to show sort of like a dynamic um, mm-hmm. movement. Yeah, it's unusual in that it's got multiple colors. If you go later in the manuscript, there is a second artist who takes over and it looks like they alternate between green and red a lot, mm-hmm. which is unusual as well. Sometimes people compare, this is, you know, this artistic style, <laughs> you said it's sort of almost not quite pretty um (laughs) they call it the winchester school of illustration it gets compared to the winchester psalter quite often and i think that it's actually supposed to be the same artist as the winchester psalter yeah so it's got these sort of 
you know they kind of remind me of like um a little bit of like you know pauline baines the illustrator Mm-mm. from like the yeah. chronicles of narnia or like old tolkien stuff oh, oh okay. yes. okay yeah that's what these mm-hmm. figures sort of remind me of yeah the thing that that i always notice is the way that the fabric is drawn oh yeah is very there's lots of folds and mm-hmm. it always looks like almost like it's moving and i noticed this even in our first episode with ali alvis and they were showing us illustrations from the no, <laughs> the glasgow yeah can't remember what it's called <laughs> hunterian salter from the hunterian salter and uh it had the same it's also like early not quite this not this early but like early english and it also had that this the same sort of like folding of the fabric which yeah yeah they were really fixated on that because if you look at the benedictional of saint athelwald you'll see a lot of really foldy elaborate fabric there as well and i've seen it compared to byzantine uh illustration programs from the same time so it could be a sort of like post carolingian you know route of transmission there for that sort of imagery but yeah you're right there's a lot of attention to cloth in these illustrations which is sort of sort of an interesting thing yeah i also like as an undergrad, the first time I looked at this, the first thing I thought when I saw this page, this page three image, I was like, oh my gosh, this is a comic strip, right? This is sequential mm-hmm. narrative yes. art. Yeah, that's exactly what it looks yep. like. Yep, they are telling a story from the top of the page to the bottom. I've also seen art historians do, like, they'll show a picture from this manuscript and they'll have arrows in their article showing, like, here's the direction your eyes are supposed to move across the page to follow the narrative. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. So some of them are quite complicated, right? There's like zigzag ones. It's not just always straight top to bottom, um, like this page mm-hmm. three here is. Yeah. So so the actual story itself, right, is it starts with this apocryphal tale about the fall of Satan, the fall of the angels, um, which is a an interesting way to start. It, it's basically picking up on this patristic um, commonplace uh, called the replacement theory of salvation, where basically... The question is, if God made everything perfect in heaven and it was full of angels, why did he bother making an earth that was going to fall later on, right? The answer was, well, when Satan fell, he took one third of heaven's angels with him to hell. And so basically to fill up that empty space, God decided to start over and make earth and humans um, who he would save. And then our souls would fill that empty third of heaven. Got it. Uh, yeah. So that's why we were created. I've always wondered. Yep. Now you know. I mean, if you get nothing else out of this podcast, you've got the meaning of life right there. There you go. <laughs> not bad for a Saturday morning. Not not bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, actually, Jill Fitzgerald has a great book that just came out a couple years ago on this whole, I think it's called Rebel Angels, um, that talks about this myth and how pervasive it was in the early english like literary scene Mm -hmm. you know because of course they themselves were a people who did not originally live in that land right they were invaders and later immigrants right uh and so this Mm -hmm. idea that like just as heaven was cleared (laughs) so that humans could immigrate into it more or less they saw england in similar terms uh in a lot of ways which is both like interesting, but also kind of troubling, right? In a col- yeah. proto-colonial sense. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so let's see. Uh, what else can we talk about this wonderful thing? We haven't really talked about the other poems. Daniel, I will say, is probably the... Oh, we didn't talk about Genesis B. Sorry, okay. We didn't talk about Genesis B, and I'd like to, because this is actually 
this is the text that I studied a bit when I was in uh, when I was in graduate school. So I'd like to talk about this. Yeah, yeah. Do you do you want to say anything about it? So the I will say the thing that interested me and the reason I um, that I was interested in the first place and that I remember it is that Genesis B sort of expands on the story around the 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 serpent and Eve. And it goes into detail about how the serpent actually convinced Eve to give the, to take the apple and to give the, or the I don't know if it's an apple in the poem, but like to take the fruit and to give the fruit to Adam. Yeah. And it, and I think that, the, so this is, again, this is like 20 years ago that I was, that I was studying this. So I'm sure that there's been more work done on it, but I remember at the time reading secondary sources that talked about how this it, you know, there was a potential implication that if a woman didn't write this poem, that there were that that there was at least thinking about like why would taking the time to think about why would a woman do this, um, and and I thought that was a really compelling thing. And then I, of course, I've I've gone off and done completely different stuff. But I remember reading it and thinking this is really cool. Yeah, it's very unique um, in terms of early treatments of Adam and Eve, right? Um, so the reason it's called Genesis B, I think we'll take a quick step back, right? Genesis A is like uh, 75% of the poem. Like when you flip through this manuscript, um, you know, as one does, uh, not me though. Um, <laughs> when you flip through the manuscript, you will just see Genesis is like, you know, a bunch of pages all in a row. There's no divisions in the text to indicate that there is a Genesis A or a B. Um, but a late 19th century philologist um, named Zephers, who sort of like is famous for coming up with um, a system that accounts for old how to scan Old English poetry. Right? Old English poetry is alliterative and accentual, so it uses accent instead of syllable numbers. Right, it uses stress patterns. Um, if you've read like the modern poetry of like uh, Gerard Manley Hopkins, right? It's that sort of thing where there's feet and stresses rather than discrete syllable counts. Anyway, um, he came up with a metrical system that, you know, some people still draw upon. Um, there's been pushback. But anyway, through by scanning this poem in particular, he realized, oh, that's weird. Right as the narrative shifts to focusing on Eve and the temptation, the metrics of the poem go off the rails. Um, there's a mm -hmm. ton of what he called hypermetric lines, lines that are simply too long that don't scan well, according to old English rules. Um, from that, he like divined basically that a lesser scholar like me, for example, might say, huh, that's weird. Uh, I guess he got sloppy there. But Zephyr has divined that the reason these are so many hypermetric lines for like almost 200 lines there is because that particular section was not composed in old English. It was composed in old Saxon, um, that there was an old Saxon original behind this poem. And he had no other evidence for this at all. Lo and behold, some years later, uh, someone in the Bibliotheca uh, Apostolica in uh, the Vatican found that exact poem in old Saxon. Yeah. Yep. That was the other thing that, that, that uh, I forgot about that until you started talking about it, but that was actually the other thing that really interested me about Genesis B was that was that story that this one guy looked at it and was like, that was written in Old Saxon, and then it's like, oh, he was right. There mm -hmm. it is. I think that's incredible. Yeah, yeah, true. Literally hard to believe. Incredible. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so we know. So, in other words, it's an interpolation, right? You've got a whole bunch of standard Old English narrative that tells Genesis A, and like I said, Genesis A is a pretty faithful um, retelling 
nothing that deviates too far from the account that you actually read in the Bible. But then you hit Genesis B with the temptation of Eve. And what I love about this manuscript is some people don't think that there's a huge correlation between the pictures and the text, but I think they were paying more attention than some people will give it credit for. Because if you look, you know, page six, we get the first uh, image of creation. We see the waters and the waters being parted. Then page seven, we see the land, dry land and plants and animals and the stars are put in at the bottom. Once we scroll ahead to the actual temptation, though, there's naked Adam and Eve quite a few times. A lot of nudity in this one. And we get some glimpses of hell in the mix um, because the narrative sometimes considers what Satan is up to and how Satan wants to like break back into creation to spoil uh, as revenge, right? To get revenge on God uh, for having banished him. But I was going to say, when we actually see the image of Eve being tempted, there it is, on page 24 in the manuscript. Oh! So, yeah, that's like, that's Genesis B. She's standing there with this pseudo-angel of light, right, who uh, we know is Satan in disguise with his feather hammer on, right? He uses this magical item to get from hell. But yeah, they're standing there, and what I love about it is, if you look at her hands and you look at his hands, they're like in these poses that are basically like, classical rhetorical poses right Mm -hmm. like it's an intellectual engagement that they're showing you in this image like they're debating like you know rhetors would like actual rhetoricians would and so like you said dot there's this attention to a woman's perspective right and i think the image is sort of giving her credit for like being an intelligent rational being that is trying to hash out logically and rhetorically with this angel why are you giving me orders that conflict with what God said a minute ago? <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and she tries and they have a long debate and Genesis B sort of chronicles that debate and, mm-hmm. and gives you a more humane, I think, glimpse into why she falls for it. Right. There are a lot of different interpretations of that moment, whether it's exonerates her in some way or whether it's just a doubling down on blaming her right because a lot of like if you read like chaucer right his um oh shoot who is it that has the book that um i'm not a chaucerian but there's a, there's a character who has a book that tells you know libelous stories about women and um oh it's is it the wife of bath's husband I think it, oh, it might be the way that sounds right. Right. And she gets yeah. mad because that book mm-hmm. blames women for all sin. Right. And this is right. sort of a medieval rhetorical commonplace that women deserve to be subjected to men because women were the ones who dragged us into this whole sin and death thing in the first place. Right. And he was seen as, you know, the archetypal, um, you know, person who botched it <laughs> first. Yeah. Um, and so in some way, so some, some scholars want to read Genesis B against that grain and say that this is someone pushing back on that narrative in some ways. Um, And I think this image might be one way to sort of support that is that she is, you know, she's given some credit here as someone who's, who's smart. She didn't get fooled into this, right? She was engaging in a debate. So there's just all sorts of wonderful little touches like that throughout this manuscript. Speaking of the fall, I have to say, I love the sequence on page uh, 31 in the manuscript. Oh, there we are. So this is another multi- this has two panels, a top panel and a bottom panel. Yeah. So in the top panel, you can see Eve is on the right and she is offering this strange looking fruit. It kind of looks like a donut to me, um, <laughs> but donuts could not have caused the fall. So I refuse no. that. Um, <laughs> donuts are good things. Not today, Satan. Uh, so she's handing this fruit to Adam and you can see that there's that false angel of light, aka Satan, standing behind Adam sort of, Mm -hmm. I don't know, gesturing, cheering them on, I guess. Um, 
And as soon as Adam bites it, the second panel at the bottom shows them on their hands and knees in contrition. They know they've sinned and boom, the angel has magically revealed himself to be Satan in disguise. Yep. He has taken off his robe and he's got a tail and yeah. he's, and he's partially naked. He's wearing sort of shorts, but he's. Yeah. It's just like a loincloth, also... right? Yeah. Yeah. Like a little loincloth. He's got his spiky uh, demon hair, which. Uh, I think oh, yeah. art historians have noted is, you know, sort of a racialization, right? This is how mm -hmm. uh, it's supposed to evoke like, you know, sort of African style hair um, in a lot of uh, other manuscript situations. Right. So, yeah. So there's a sort of racializing of demons. And that's the same hair that he has when he's in hell, too. But if you know, if you look at the top mm -hmm. panel, he's got regular curly hair like Adam and Eve. So, mm -hmm. yeah. But, but And in the top panel, he, half of him is in red ink and the rest is in black mm -hmm. yes yeah yeah and that's the only red ink in this panel i think if my yeah and so yeah that's a good point so if the color changing is meant to evoke dynamism or draw your mm -hmm. attention to things you know that's the item that gets sort of whisked off <laughs> in the bottom panel yeah. right like that's the yeah. one big thing that we're seeing in that top image and then lo and behold the big reveal yeah, at the cool. bottom yeah and I just have to say that in this manuscript, the attention to detail in belly buttons and knees <laughs> is just extraordinary. They really have lovely round, round little bellies and yes, and the belly buttons and the knee, yes, and the knees and... They're dimpled. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. And that's before the fall too. I was thinking like maybe because mm -hmm. they bend down and pray so much, but like, no, that's nope. prelapsarian. We were just portly, <laughs> happy, naked little hobbits. That's right. Oh, no. I love that. <laughs> but only for a little bit. Only for a little bit. Yeah, right. Yeah, because then, spoilers, there is a fall. Actually, I'm going to, I'm still on page 31. Uh -huh. And I just noticed in the bottom margin, Yeah. there is oh, yeah. something. It yeah. looks like, it's it's not a drawing because there's no ink. Yeah. But it looks like somebody pressed something into there and drew a lion. Is yes. that a lion? what's going on here i think it's a lion yeah there are at least five um sketches that were at a later date i believe um sketched mm -hmm. into this manuscript at various points uh so that is like sketched like with a stylus right not with right them. right in a in a hard point yes. i think is what i'm thinking of yeah. yeah there's an article in speculum in the 70s about i wish i could remember who wrote it but um okay. yeah it, it's i think it's called like five new um images in junius 11 right um very okay. actual title but yeah so that one is i'm not sure how that would thematically be related the one that is thematically related is later it comes up in one of these blank spots right here near the fall because it depicts it's supposed to be a sketch of michael with a shield like the archangel michael with a shield and a sword mm -hmm. he's about to do oh, like protecting yeah yeah, because, you know, in Revelation, um, he's said to duel Satan, the dragon. And so, yeah, it's sort of like someone started to sketch that, mm -hmm. maybe show the spiritual struggle going on here. And then they, did they give up? Is it incomplete? We don't know why they stopped. Um, yeah. Yeah, maybe someone died. Maybe funding ran out. Um, <laughs> so... Going on for a long time. Understandable. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Uh... So cool. So sorry, sorry to interrupt. Uh, I will say that for for we keep mentioning publications, even ones that you can't remember. We will track them down and we will put them in the show notes. So if you're listening, do not worry. Yeah, sorry. Guys. Um, we will we will give you we will give you links to those. 
Yeah. I'm a librarian. We can do this. <laughs> I have them all in a, in a folder right here in front of me. I just, yeah. Oh, there we go. Um, Very cool. Yeah. So, so, so speaking of the fall, if you look on page 36, you can see uh, once Adam and Eve, so they've, they've realized their sin. They've clutched some leaves. They're holding leaves over their uh, genitals. And now that Eve, the, the Genesis B actually tells us that um, the fruit actually does give her some superpowers kind of like Satan told a half truth. The text tells us that she gets this like far sight and she can actually see heaven with her mortal eyes and she can see hell. And so I think that's what we're getting here on 36 is all of a sudden she can literally see hell open up at their feet. Oh my. Yep. That doesn't look pleasant. We have fallen angels and we have a poor guy. Looks like he's been, he's tied up hands and feet and he is being tortured. Yeah, yeah, I think that's our bound Satan there, as he often shows up. Oh, is that who that is? Oh, okay. Yeah, it's weird. I'm not really sure, because it looks like we've got Satan in the garden standing next to them at the top of the page, right? And then we get this black portal of hell, um, and then he's there. So I don't know if that's meant to sort of be like... I mean, when you think about like the timing of these things, like the actual Mm -hmm. chronological aspect of the narrative, it's like, well, Satan has always been in hell. He is always in hell forever for what he's done. Even while the narrative's happening, I'm not, it, it's hard to parse uh, sometimes. Right. Yeah. But, uh, and I hate to keep harping on about anatomy, but in this page, Eve has lost oh, her right. nipples and something strange has happened to Adam as they appear to have multiplied. <laughs> Adam, Adam seems to oh have no, right. nipples. I don't, I didn't intend to talk about nipples at length on this podcast, <laughs> but now that we're here, if you, <laughs> If you zoom in, if you zoom in on the nipples, you will see zoom it in. at various points. Uh, I wouldn't say that Adam's nipples have multiplied, but this artist has chosen to show nipples as a central dot surrounded by a sort of constellation of dots. Mm-hmm. They're pretty yes. consistent about that, oh, whether it's Adam's or Eve's. Mm-hmm. So um, I don't know. I mean. If you've been around someone who's breastfeeding, um, that's not wholly inaccurate. No, it is. It's it's a nipple and it's the areola. Right. And it's just very interesting to me that on this page, Eve has none and Adam has a Right. Mom. Yeah, it is weird. I don't know if it's unfinished. I don't I don't know that I think it's on purpose because like in the rest of the images, they're there. Um, hmm. Yeah. Maybe they, maybe he just forgot. They just forgot. Yeah. I think in, so in the previous, if you scroll up to the next page, the previous page, which is page 34, Adam also has those. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. He, look the same. It's not the only time he has them, right? Yeah. But Eve, but Eve does yes. have, and her nipples look different. Her nipples yeah. are different. Yeah. But they are, they are indeed lacking in the one on page uh, 36 yeah if you go down to 39 everything goes back to normal so i don't think it's meant to be a permanent change <laughs> yeah it could just yeah. be that the artist got just, just a blooper, a blooper. <laughs> <laughs> if you go to 41 you can see the consequences of all this where god is scolding the snake right which is interesting because like so far we've seen the temptation was happening through it's satan dressed up as an angel of light angel. right yeah um but here like we sort of shift back to the genesis a narrative i guess in the illustration mm-hmm. in it, where it's actually a snake like in the bible um but in the text is the text still genesis b at this point in the manuscript 
Like how far does Genesis B go? Question. It's hard for me to tell you because we don't have line numbers in here. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I guess I could just look at the text and, and guess. This is Genesis A. Let me scan it for you. Uh, no, let's not do that. No. Unnecessary. Yeah, I, just, I was just curious. Yeah. Okay. It does show this sort of interesting back and forth between the presumably the poetic texts, Genesis A and Genesis B. Yeah. And also the, well, I guess at the same time, like the Genesis A, which like follows the Bible basically. And then yeah. Genesis B, which is this like sort of different thing. Yeah. Different and how thing. do you bring them together in the, in the illustrations? Well, he was an angel and now he's now he's this and so we'll picture him like right like this serpent very impressively like standing straight up on his tail he is not even sort of wound and there's up. another serpent there is another serpent it's got a round belly yeah and i'm not sure that doesn't happen in the old english as far as i remember but i've i've there are other genesis apocrypha that talk about oh. like uh how satan sort of literally like uh possesses a serpent Mm -hmm. um so that could be like the standing up one is the spirit of satan and the one that's mm -hmm. slinking away might be the actual physical serpent that's like trying to get out of there oh that could or be. it could be the serpent being dismissed after god curses him and takes his legs away mm -hmm. yeah um yeah. The, i will say the one that's upright looks like it looks almost like there's been something drawn around him yeah or the one lying there's one lying on the ground that's quite clear and the yeah. one that's standing up do you see what I'm talking about? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it does look like maybe it started to be erased or rubbed or something. Or maybe, yeah, yeah. yeah. He looks a bit scribbled on. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So that's interesting. I would be curious to know what an art historian would make of that. Yeah, I would like to hear more about that too. Um, yeah. Because I'm pretty sure in uh, Avitus, who is a, a late antique writer of biblical epics, um, he i'm pretty sure in his version of genesis it says that satan takes a reed um mm. and breathes into it and like makes a fake snake out of that um so so maybe that tradition is being evoked here with this sort of stiff vertical upright snake i don't know mm -hmm. i tried to write about that once and then i didn't finish it and it's still sitting on my file and my computer just okay. gathering dust so that's the first time anyway I, yeah it's I haven't talked about that with anyone. <laughs> um, <Okay. laughs> on 45, one thing I love here is, so this, this, the narrative, you know, goes from cursing the snake. Then on 44, we get God, uh, I guess, cursing Adam and Eve in turn in this weird mm -hmm. image that shows them both simultaneously and sort of like two gods back to back. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. But then on 45, we get Adam and Eve are about to be dismissed from Eden and look at that. God has given them clothes, which the Bible does, you know, in the biblical narrative that is there. But I love the mm -hmm. fact that he has given them very clearly like contemporary 10th century uh, early mm -hmm. English clothes. Right. And she's got the wimple and he's got the tunic and like they look like they're straight from the Bayou Tapestry almost. They really do. Yeah. And they've still got their little Yeah, they've still got their bellies. Um, <laughs> and now Adam has a shovel and a bucket to help fill those bellies. Good. Yeah. <laughs> and then... <laughs> Do you see that Eve is holding something as well? It looks almost like a coin. Oh, yeah. Little dog. Yeah. Hmm. I, it's not the fruit, is it? It looks kind of like the fruit. It does look like the fruit. That would be weird if she carried the fruit out with her. It, it would be weird. She doesn't have it in the next page. Uh -huh. Is that part of the clothing? Is it a necklace? No, she doesn't have a necklace on. 
Um, she doesn't have it. I don't know. She I mean, the traditional it. thing, right, is that Adam has a spade and she has a distaff. Mm-hmm. Um, but that doesn't really look like that to me. Maybe. They, hmm. Yeah, there's always all these little details. And that's the thing. Like, I, I should just throw it out there. We should have said this earlier. I am no art historian. I am clearly a literary <laughs> scholar, right? Like, no, so no. I spend time, like, puzzling over these things and thinking, like, hmm, is that what I think it is? But I love, like, sometimes I will, you know, like, I gave a paper at Sewanee last year talking about the images in a different Old English text. And I had all these questions of when my, my expert panelist responded, he was like, yep, I have those questions too. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so sometimes there aren't definitive answers. Um, scholars are still working on figuring out what some of these little details are. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so so that's Genesis A and B. And I feel like I've sort of walked us through uh, Sunday school at this point, right? <laughs> and you know the purpose of life, you know why we've had the fall, you know what happens to Adam and Eve after the fall. Then the manuscript moves on to Exodus, which alas has no pictures at all. And then we get Daniel, which is just a retelling of the feast scene in the book of Daniel where the writing on the wall appears. It, it's a fairly short poem. And in my opinion, not, not incredibly interesting. It's interesting for linguistic reasons, but it's... Not as exciting as Exodus and Genesis. And then we get Christ and Satan, which is all kinds of unhinged when it comes to narrative. <laughs> like it is, mm-hmm. there have been debates and scholarship over how many poems is this poem? So what is it? What is it about? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I would say that there are at least three movements in it and you can only describe them as movements because it's very stream of conscious. Uh, it, it starts out as Satan sort of complaining about you know, how mad he is at Christ and how he's going to get his revenge. And then it moves us through a series of biblical conflicts between Christ and Satan, right? Uh, We get scenes from the Hebrew scriptures. We get the temptation, um, the temptation of Christ, you know, from the gospels, like in the, in the wilderness. Um, And then we get sort of a lot of soliloquies from Satan where he's lamenting the fact that he is an exile, you know, in a very old English sort of way that he's been exiled from his heavenly hall and that he wants to retake it. And then we get sort of a glimpse of the final judgment, right? Where Satan finally loses. It's really hard to like figure out what is happening from one segment to another though, just narratively. And I will add that from a catechological standpoint, we can tell that, Christ and Satan was not originally part of this manuscript. It's very, it's, it's easy to tell visually. So it's the last text in the. Yeah. You can, I'm going to see if I can, I'm going to see if I can figure it out. <laughs> yeah, <we're going laughs> I was going to say, it's very obvious visually because all the pages all of a sudden have this crease in the middle of them. Um, oh, that's and so, oh, I see the crease. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and so it looks like uh, Christ and Satan was copied totally separately by a series of different scribes, probably at a later date. And I think general scholarly consensus is it's creased because it was a booklet that somebody just like carried around with them in their pocket. Um, and then eventually decided belongs in this manuscript. And so they flattened it out and, you know, added it in there um, for the last right. segment of the manuscript. Yeah. So the crease goes horizontally across the middle of the page. Yeah. Like it was folded yeah, like it was folded down the center. Yeah, it starts on 212, 213. There's a gap at 211, and there's an actual missing folio. Oh, yeah, it looks like there's... Yeah, 210 is like the end of Daniel. Yeah, two, and 211 is blank. Yeah, except for that one little word there at the bottom, in on, within... Okay, and then 212. Yeah. Uh, 
Yeah, I think it uh two I see the crease on two thirteen. I don't actually time. see it on two twelve. Right, yeah, yes. same, same. Yeah. Um, and that's one thing that I like about this manuscript too, and this is probably true of all manuscripts, right? Um, is that you can see the signs of use and the signs of mm-hmm. how people actually engaged with this thing all throughout the Genesis and Exodus portions. There's all these little XBs in the side, you know, Christe Bene, where the scribe is asking Christ to bless them for their labor. Mm-hmm. I love thinking about, you know, the material circumstances in which someone was like laboring over making this thing, you know, and at the end of a long day, maybe they put their little XB in there. Well, I'm just scrolling along and landed on 161. There's a repair to that page. It looks stitched. Yeah, you're right. Starting there on the lower left and all the way diagonally to the middle, pretty much. Oh, yeah, look at that. Oh, and that's that's happened after the manuscript was made. Sometimes you see repairs like that made that are clearly when the parchment was being made. And the yeah. scribe writes around it. But this just goes right through the text. It's like yeah. a little... I wonder if I can f- figure out what the conjoined leaf is. You mean like what the text is on it? No, I'm I'm wondering what the leaf is that's conjoined to it. So the oh. from the sheet, if that one also has a some kind of. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah, but I don't. Mm. I don't know. I'm not. I, yeah. It's so hard to tell on these. It is hard to tell, and I will tell you that it would be more complicated than usual with this particular leaf, because just at a glance, I can see that this is what's known as one of the patriarchal digressions in uh-huh. um, in Exodus, where the Exodus poet was telling us the story, and then just decides, you know what, I'm going to stop, and we're going to talk about Noah or Abraham <laughs> or the sacrifice of Isaac <laughs> instead right. for like fifty lines, because uh, this is talking about Noah, uh-huh. and I'm pretty sure this is not. Yeah, no, this is not the Genesis account of Noah. This is the Exodus poet doing his own weird thing with Noah as yet another ship of the church. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So um, I say all that to say there's a lot of debate in scholarship over whether these patriarchal digressions, so-called, which we don't really think are digressions anymore. We think they're, you know, other instances. It's sort of the poet saying, here's another typological instance. Here's another one that's kind of like this one, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and they're exuberance. <laughs> but yeah, it's... There's debate over, are these things in the right position? Should they have been somewhere else in the poem originally? Is the poem kind of scrambled up? Or was the poet just like this all the time? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so um, I'm trying to think, have we missed any? Oh, you know what? There is one exciting uh, image that I wanted to talk about in particular. If you go to page, is it 71? Sorry, the PDF pages are different from the actual... I believe it's page 71 in the PDF, but page 61 in the manuscript. We're going back into Genesis here. Oh, I just yep. Here we are. Back here. Yep. Oh, that's... So we learn... A... Yeah, right? <laughs> okay, can I, can, I, can I describe this? Because this is... I don't know and what yep. it is. <laughs> so it's a, it's, it's a large panel. Uh, and at the bottom, there's a, a person. It looks like a human person standing with their arms out, out to the side raised. And they're looking up. Everybody's looking up. There are angels on either side of this person. Uh, and then there are more people sort of off to the sides, more humans off to the sides. What's really interesting is the top of the the panel. There are two angels holding what looks like the bottom half of someone. And then above there's like fire. I don't know yeah. if that's fire. It's like something, but there's the real thing that you need to understand is that there's half a half a human figure <laughs> or something. Belly, belly down to the feet. It's like very striking. What 
what is happening here, Stephen? <laughs> so at this point in Genesis, this is Enoch. Mm. Enoch is famous in biblical lore for being one of the two people who does not die, right? Um, he is taken <laughs> straight into heaven. So this is what we're seeing. Um, wow. Okay. Okay. You said did not die. And I was like, they're cut him in half and he's still alive. But that's obviously not what you're, not what you're not what you're talking about okay no yeah but like yeah that, that, i think that's supposed to be enoch at the bottom with the angels on either side of him and he has his hands raised because he's about you know in prayer i guess because he's about to be raised into heaven oh, uh got he's got it. his little phrygian cap on which is sort of an anti-semitic uh Ooh, art convention cool. there yep. um and he's about to be raised and then boom they raise him and yeah his torso is sort of like melting into this ethereal fire at the top <laughs> okay so that's him this is him like mid-process of going to heaven he yep. did not he did not just disappear. He got sucked in there bit by bit. <laughs> yep. Yeah, apparently. And I guess I mean he's not fully dissolved because there's all sorts of legends about him being bodily intact waiting at the gates of heaven. Like there's all sorts of apocrypha about him and Elijah, because Elijah's the other guy who gets taken up in a chariot of fire rather than dying. Um, and supposedly they are supposed to wait at the gates of heaven forever and ever alive until doomsday, because when Antichrist shows up in Jerusalem, they are supposed to show up and duel him. And in some legends, they know that they're going to die in that battle. And so like, there's this Irish apocrypha, uh, apocryphal text called the two sorrows of the kingdom of heaven. And the two sorrows are those guys. They are the two sad boys in heaven who are depressed because they know that they're being kept alive just to get slaughtered in Jerusalem by Antichrist. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I have to yeah. Say, so, yeah, this is great. I write horror stories. I'm getting so many ideas from this conversation. This is great. If you're into M.R. James, I mean, this is the sort of like his ghost stories, his antiquarian ghost stories. Like these are the sorts of images that he was dealing with that like, yeah, you know why he thought that these books were haunted. <laughs> yes, I totally, I totally get it. I'm going to be thinking about Enoch getting dissolved into heaven for, I'm going to be thinking about that. Uh, <laughs> oh. you... No, no, no. Sorry. Do you have a question, Lindsay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just, I have a very literal brain and I'm just imagining getting to heaven and there's this guy and you can only see half of him at the gate because this bottom half is still dangling. <laughs> it's like that scene in that movie. Oh God, it was a horrible movie. The Money Pit? Have you guys seen The Money Pit? It's this old Tom Hanks movie. The Tom Hanks? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Where he, there's a scene where he like oh, yeah. he's standing on the rug and he like there's a hole under the rug and so he goes to the rug and then he gets stuck and you see him from below with his little feet and he's like singing you know he can't get out <laughs> yeah i'm all for apocryphal tom hanks this is good <laughs> this is we don't actually normally laugh this and i was not expecting to laugh like this at junius 11 I'm, thank you very much for bringing this to us um yeah sorry <laughs> no it's no it's fine this is great i this it's just it's really it's such a cool manuscript and um yeah, if you would really. like, if you would like to be more dignified and more staid in our appreciation of Junius Eleven, we can solemnly proceed to page seventy-six or sixty-six in the manuscript, since we're we're there. Shortly after Enoch is melted into heaven like a butter sculpture, <laughs> um, <laughs> we get Noah's Ark. Oh, look at that! Oh, it's glorious! It looks like a Viking ship. <laughs> yeah, that's what we're talking about. It does. Wow. Yep, 
That's what I wanted to talk about. It's got goats and peacocks. Yep. Oh, it does. For viewers, or for listeners at home who are not viewers, of course, you can see the image in the show notes. But what we're looking at here is a big ship at the bottom of the page. Like this, this ship takes up almost the entire page. But at the bottom of the page, it looks like a Viking ship, right? It's got the dragon head on one side and the fin on the back side. Uh, and there's even like, these little red things that look like the, I guess, the notches for rowing for oars. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there even is one. Oh, is yeah. that? No, I don't think that's an oar. I think he's actually steering. That's oh, is that the rudder? I think that's the rudder. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, but then right in the middle, taking up pretty much the whole ship is like what looks like a castle has been dropped mm-hmm. down uh, in the top of or the, the boat. So it's yeah, like a, it even like looks like it's made of stone. It. Yeah. That does not look like wood. Yeah. You can see it being constructed on the previous page on 65. Mm-hmm. They're like hewing it. So I don't know if that's supposed to be wood because he's got an axe and he's chopping there. Maybe it's supposed to be wood, but it does. It looks like a stone, like <laughs> perch or something. Yeah. Yeah. I'll so I just, yeah, yeah. I mean, I love this detail of like, you can tell that this is, you know, late ninth century because there's mm-hmm. been a century of Viking depredations and like, mm-hmm everyone knows what a viking ship looks like um and so much so that like when they picture a big ocean going vessel they have to sort of picture it as a drakkar ship yeah yeah i love that detail that's very cool yes and i see like foxes like little things with horns on the bottom and then the goats and birds at the top and then there are angels and chickens up at the top yeah are they are they they do have the little uh, eyes in their wings. Yep, those are biblically yeah. accurate. That is so cool. And at the very top, there is a little guy who looks like he is releasing. Oh, is he releasing oh, he the dove? Be releasing the dove. Yeah, maybe. So there's another bird sitting next. Maybe it's to the, the raven first, and the dove is the raven dove is and then the dove. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, fun. I don't think I've noticed that before. I'm glad you pointed that out because I think I've just kind of like filtered that out. Because if you look on the two little turrets. There, we've got, I think those are weathercocks. They look like weathercocks, little chickens anyway. Yeah, that or they are just chickens from the boat that are just <laughs> hanging out out there. But, it's um, hard to tell. Yeah, yeah. And you can see a lot of these squiggles at the bottom that look like the squiggles from the throne room on page one. I mm-hmm. guess that's supposed to be the water in this case. And there's Jesus yeah. standing on the water. Oh, yeah. Jesus For- is going to close the door. Right. God, <laughs> God closes the door <laughs> on the ark. Everyone's inside. Well, I guess it has to be, well, okay, strictly speaking, I think it has to be Jesus because God doesn't, you know, incarnate. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's the same, that same image of Jesus. I guess that's an interesting thing about this manuscript is it does actually pay attention to those distinctions because this is the same Jesus that we saw way at the beginning when Satan falls on page three. Mm-hmm. And it's the same figure that's like hurling the three spears down at them. It is, isn't it? Uh-huh. Um. But if you look at the God on page one in the throne room, that God looks different. And the God who like creates sometimes looks different um, than this Jesus figure who appears multiple times. So they are, it seems like they're paying attention to this sometimes. Yeah. Um, Oh, and okay. So speaking of uh, celebrity guest appearances, one thing that I have only recently learned about this manuscript as much as much time as I've spent with images of it. If you look on manuscript page two, um, Normally with, with old English poetry and especially with old English book production, um, you know, I always make the joke to my students that all old English poetry was written by the same author and they're like, what? And I was like, anonymous. Uh, <laughs> because 
we don't know anything about who wrote most of these yeah. named authorship wasn't a thing in this culture especially for old english right it was for latin stuff but with vernacular they seemed to uh, not care about authorship in the same way maybe because they're drawing from an oral common tradition right they didn't feel they owned it in the same way but um what we get here at the bottom of page two is a little circle portrait oh. of a young man, and it says Alfwina. It does. Yeah, hmm. so there's been conjecture that maybe that's who commissioned this manuscript. Mm-hmm. We're not really sure, but definitely not part of the narrative. No. But there he is. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I wonder who he was. Yeah, I can't tell if he's supposed to have a beard or a big chin or... He looks young to me, though. Young with a big chin. Yeah. So those are the things that I love about this manuscript. There's just a lot of weirdness and vibrancy. You can tell that there's a lot of care for these narratives and trying to give them this really epic dignity. Mm-hmm. But there's also like, and maybe this is sort of a thread that runs through my own scholarship. You can, in looking at the details of these images and, and the poems themselves, you get glimpses of all the sort of extra canonical baggage that comes along with like there's the bible story and then there's what these guys are doing right which is bible story plus all these accretions of lore and legends and stuff and i love that's one of the things that really caught my imagination with this manuscript was you know as an undergrad like i knew the bible stories pretty well but then seeing this this version of them and wondering where did these additions come from right like that's sort of been a constant question for me ever since yeah it seems like it's a really interesting example and a good example of a community taking this these texts which were really would have been kind of alien to them like being written in where they were in the world and the time that passed even between getting them there and and making them their own and sort of contextualizing them within their own sense of history and sense of place Uh, like what you said about exodus with the like it's set in the desert, but then they change it. So it's like, has all of this maritime imagery, which is what would have been familiar to them. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, I guess looking more broadly, you could also make an argument that it's a great example of sort of why Christianity, the way that Christianity was able to spread Mm -hmm. um, because it did allow for people to sort of do these really strange and weird things. Well, allow, I don't actually know what, Rome thought about this, but you know, that, that this happened. And that's the nice thing about the early middle ages. It didn't matter what Rome thought <laughs> of any organization or much authority. Right? <laughs> that's true. That's um, true. Yeah. I mean, that's sort of the gist of the book I'm working on is, is how Apocrypha allow for these weird experiments that where people can localize, where they can sort of customize the theology that can make room for their little, local identities within this with this this new faith that could be global you know that could erase who they are but instead apocrypha allow them to customize it um, to find these weird gaps in the narrative where they can add stuff that speaks to their culture mm-hmm. that's very cool uh, when is your when is your book are you you're writing it right now so you don't I I have submitted <laughs> samples and prospectuses to publishers. Reviewers have them. So cool. Don't know. Well, good no luck. Idea. Yeah. Good luck. Thank you. Yeah. I was going to offer to put a put to put like information about it in the show notes, but it might be a little early for that. Can't give whatever you that you information want. yet. Yeah. Whatever you want to whatever you want to put in there, we'll do that. But in a year or two, look for Excellent. it somewhere. I will be. That sounds very cool. So, Lindsay, do you have any questions for? Stephen? Oh, oh goodness. I'm still trying to recover. 
yes, I'm just I've sped to the end and I'm looking at the back of the at the back cover of this book and it looks like there are a couple of doodles. Yes, oh yeah. Are those later doodles or I don't know if you know how old they are. Yeah, no, um I meant to mention that. Yeah, if you look on the very they're not even numbered pages, right? It's like 246 and 24 uh, no, just 246 in the uh, PDF. I've heard them in scholarship called metallurgical sketches. They look kind of like Viking-y style metal work uh, where beasts are sort of like twisted around each other. Yeah, I, we don't know why they're there. It actually looks like uh, a torque, right? Like, um, It does. Yeah, and there's, a, there's two of them there. So we, they have to be roughly contemporary with the manuscript, right? Because that's a style that was really in vogue then. It wouldn't have been... Like it's not like someone centuries later was doodling these things. Not really sure why they're in there, though. There's actually another design a lot like that a few pages before um, on 225 in the manuscript. It's the end of Christ and Satan. We get this strange but awesome geometric uh, square that looks like it's not finished. Oh, wow. Yeah. Looks like a really awesome floor tile. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I was going to say. It looks like a carpet page or a carpet half page. Um, and you can tell it's unfinished, right? They've, they've started in the middle of all these floral designs. But then as you go further out from the center, it's just the blank um, geometric shapes that they would have filled in with more more floral curls. They're interesting. They're really pretty. Yeah. They... Uh, other questions? Um, uh, did you enjoy Bible stories as a kid? <laughs> I did. Um, I. How could you tell? <laughs> oh, you know, takes one to know one. <laughs> I was say, yeah, I mean, I guess uh, in some senses, I started with a leg up on this stuff because my dad was a pastor, so like I was, I grew up surrounded by these stories, you know, and that's part of what was so appealing to me as an undergrad when I saw that like there were medieval versions of these stories, and they're so different from you know, the stuff that I had seen. Yeah. So, so yeah, that was part of the fascination was just like, where are these differences coming from? Right. Mm-hmm. I've been sort of exploring that on my own over the last few years. And it's just really amazing. Everything that, I don't know, I feel almost cheated in a way. It's like my grandfather was an Episcopal uh-huh. priest and he's been to seminary and he knows all of this stuff. And it's like, why didn't you ever tell me about this version of that story. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's, yeah, I just, I hear a little twinkle in your voice when you're talking about this. It's like, oh, he knows these stories. He loves <laughs> well, that's one of the things. Yeah. I mean, I think like, you know, if you want to get into my uh, gritty reboot, my, my backstory, right? Like I can remember as a kid sort of terrifying Sunday school teachers because I'd already like been subjected to the stories so many times that I had very specific questions about what happens to Enoch when he gets, it says he was taken bodily up. Like what happens, right? Like, I don't know if I asked that question exactly, but like, that's one of the things that I love about Mm -hmm. these medieval texts is they pick up on some of these questions that like any intelligent reader who's been steeped in this stuff might naturally wonder, right? Like uh, that's one of my main Mm -hmm. things that I I talk about in my scholarship is that Apocrypha basically answer questions that people have about narrative gaps in the canonical scriptures or like, well, it says that Jesus was in the tomb for three days. Why three days? What was he doing in there? Right. Um, and we get this whole apocryphal tradition of the harrowing of hell that grows out of that question, basically, right. That he needed time to go down to hell and liberate the, the old Testament prophets and patriarchs. Right. 
So yeah, yeah. Yes, I, I was I was very similar as a child, and most of my questions I asked my mother, who grew up a Southern Baptist and is very strong evangelical Christian. Just like Lindsay, that part doesn't matter. And I have never been satisfied with that answer. Yeah, my dad didn't didn't uh, plot me down like that, but but I definitely had Sunday school teachers who were like, "Yeah, please stop, just stop." <laughs> Why don't you have a water yes. break, Stephen? Go get crackers <laughs> in the kitchen for the rest of us. <laughs> That's not the point. Get over it. Yeah. Well, it, what is your favorite Bible story? Is it Exodus? Favorite Bible story? No, actually. Um, I love the po the poetic treatment of it. I mean, I guess, it's a, yeah, it's a great story, but I don't have anything against it. But uh, man, mm -hmm. my favorite story? Hmm. I think about your favorite time. manuscript. <laughs> Right. Like, yeah. And I, didn't, so I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't have time to prepare for this. Um, I mean, boy, there's, I, I will say that it's hard for me to like think off the top of my head because I spend so much time normally thinking about apocryphal stories mm -hmm. that I'm like, uh, let's sift these and decide like, you know what I mean? Um, yeah, totally. But I, 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 even with the canonical stories, I like the ones that give you weird glimpses of things that aren't totally consistent you know sort of like glitches mm -hmm. in the narrative if you will where like so right before the flood the the text talks about this is in genesis talks about how giants roamed the earth in those days as we all know um and you're like do we do they <laughs> right little oddities like that um and then of course there's all sorts of apocryphal traditions that grow up around that so i like those moments those are fun yeah those are very cool I guess those are glimpses of like these texts, you know, as a kid, I was told that this is one book. Um, but like, those are the moments where you really can see like, uh, this is a collection of texts that come to us from a very complicated tradition. Mm -hmm. And there's layers and layers and layers of, you know, lore and transmission behind them. The version that we're looking at, like, is, you know, there's some stability there for sure and continuity, but like, there's also a lot of complexity that you know you could sweep under the rug or maybe those are entry points to to something a lot more interesting other than genius 11 are there any other manuscripts in this world that you would just love to sit down and get your hands on oh wow <laughs> my other favorite manuscripts your other favorite manuscripts looking my, yes looking at my bookshelf uh <laughs> just trying to think off the top of my head i mean of course like i basically any old English, I will say that just through freaks of my own, you know, scholarly career so far, which has not been very long, I have not gotten to handle any old English anything um, other than the two binding fragments that the Lilly Library in Indiana has. They have two little strips. One is from Alfred's grammar and the other one is from um, one of his saints lives. And they're like, they're literally just binding fragments. So they're just mm -hmm. like the spine length of a book. Yeah. So that's all I've gotten to see of old English stuff. Yeah. It'll be cool to see the Hexateuch, the old English Hexateuch in that person. Would be amazing. Yeah. I really want to see Cotton Tiberius B5, the one that has the wonders of the East and has mm -hmm. the um, illustration of the penitence of Yannis and Mambres. Mm -hmm. um, that's a text that I work on a lot, but it's basically this like apocryphal. Um, so I, I don't want to go egregiously over time, but um Yamnes and Mambres are these two named characters who only get named in the Bible in 2 Timothy. Paul talks about them as magicians who withstood Moses. Ooh. 
Um, but if you go back to Exodus, they are not named. Those names do not appear anywhere. Um, so what that means is it's Paul drawing on an apocryphal tradition, right, in the canonical scriptures. Old English folks picked up on that and sort of retconned Yamnes and Mambres back into Exodus. So like whenever they're retelling Exodus in, say, the Old English Erosius, they actually add those characters in at the parting of the Red Sea. Yamnes and Mambres make a quick appearance there, even though that's not in Erosius and it's not in the Bible. So yeah, like that sort of thing. Like I would love to, but if we, you know what, when we're looking at manuscript images, I, viewers just need to see it. I don't have it pulled up, but Google, maybe if we just type Yamnes and Mambres. The image is like one of my favorite. Okay, so I, I Google imaged Yamnes and Mambre's Old English, and I will send you the link in the, um, in right. the chat. In the chat. The Wikipedia page has the image. It's just, I think it's my favorite medieval image. If this had been my favorite manuscript image, this would have been the one. <laughs> I want this to be my book cover. I want this to be a giant All poster right. in my house. There we go. Oh! Apologies. So what we're seeing there... Mm-hmm. Cotton Tiberius B5. Oh my goodness. <laughs> right? <laughs> Look at those eyes. So there's it's a colored image in similar style to the Junius 11. Like it's clear, like early English, I think. There's mm-hmm. a guy standing up at the top of the panel. Yeah, he's like on a mountain. Yeah, like on a mountain. And there's a giant blue creature with sharp talons and red eyes and hair that looks like fire and coming up out of the very sharp yeah sharp teeth does not look friendly beefy and muscular yeah he's like reaching so the weird thing is so the penitence of yamnes and mambres is this very short like like single page text that tells about these two brothers and basically all it tells us is you can see Mambres is standing on top of the hill and he's reading the necromantic books of his brother is what the text tells us. And so he's trying to summon his brother from the dead. And so what's weird is we don't know if this picture is supposed to be his brother. It doesn't really make sense because in the text, like they have a conversation and there's no indication that his brother is a demon, but whoever drew this was like, what if it was Satan chewing on corpses? Right. Right. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah. There are people getting eaten. I didn't mention this. There are, you know, there is you can two see bodies clearly. Like, yeah, getting eaten yeah, by something. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There are also bodies. There's a burial shroud down there in the lower right. There's um, oh, possibly yeah. Satan bound by serpents at the bottom. Mm-hmm. There's little wolves, I guess, chewing on these bodies. Does not look like fun. Right? Yeah, but it is yeah. such an exciting picture. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't remember how we got here. So are these guys your favorite, your favorite little bit of. Oh, right. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, it's just like one of these like bizarre things that like obviously captured their imagination too. Right. And this idea that like in the text itself, it's interesting that Yamnes from hell preaches to his brother basically and says, you have to change your ways. It's sort of like a Christmas carol, but you know, much scarier. Um, where he's like, you have to change your ways. You have to stop treating people bad or you'll be here in hell with me like this forever. And he's um, like, I don't want to be a demon with fire on my head. So. I mean, the text and the image really don't match up. I, I've, I've been writing about <laughs> this lately. They, there's really not... This artist was just kind of doing their own thing. Right. Because the text tells us that Yamnes that is like... He complains specifically about how cramped hell is. That he says that you'll be in this little tiny hole here with me. Um, where there's not even enough room to stretch out. 
<laughs> so it's very different from what we're seeing here where we've got this like sort of monster like like you said like these glowing eyes sort of reaching up threateningly at mambres i love it there are some medieval images that i see and you know i get the sense that okay this person was taking this very very seriously and they were very solemn this just screams that whoever made this was having a ball doing it it just has such an enthusiasm yeah it's like someone who enjoys making horror movies that's what it makes me feel Mm -hmm. like honestly i look at it and i'm like yes have you seen the they had have you seen drag me to hell Mm-mm. No, oh, okay. it's it's not a very it's not an amazing horror movie. It's by Sam Raimi, the guy who does like Evil Dead and all of that. Um, uh, yes, but yeah, it's I think it came out like two thousand nine or something. But it's about someone who gets a cursed coin, and it's actually based loosely on M. R. James. But um, but yeah, it's just this idea that like you are going to actually be dragged into hell by this demon here. <laughs> um, yeah, they, I think I think you're right. I think they, it looks like they had some fun with it. That's amazing. I think that that is a really great. <laughs> thing to end on so thank you Stephen, for coming on and telling us all about junius 11 this was so much fun it was yeah thank you so much for having me you're welcome and we'll we will see you later sounds good thank you for listening to inside my favorite manuscript Please, if you enjoy the podcast, leave a rating or a review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Our website is insidemyfavoritemanuscript.tumblr.com, and there you'll find posts for all our episodes and a link where you can contact us directly. We'll be back again soon with another conversation about manuscripts and why we love them.